welcome to One of Two Hundred, the independent New Zealand politics and media podcast. You're here with three of your three of your favourite hosts, all the the people you wish you could listen to every week. Um, <laughs> sorry for sorry for berating you with Kyle's uh, painful tones when you've been missing us. Um, we're back. You're welcome. Uh, it's me, Philip. We also have Josephine. How are you doing, Josephine? Kia ora. I'm doing good. Um, a lovely Sunday morning in uh, Te Wanganui Atara, Wellington. Nice. Nice, it's nice. that mythical good day. So I'm, you know, um, looking forward to going outside and enjoying the sun. Exciting. Exciting to learn whether it's true that they can't be beaten or not. That's the seems like the main thing that people in Wellington say. So you're going to have to take up the slogan um, of the city. <laughs> we also have Branko. How are you, Branko? Yeah, kia ora. How are you going? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, it's funny, actually, that the, you, you're complaining about Kyle. Yeah, from what I've heard, uh, listeners can't tell the difference between uh, you and Kyle. So, <laughs> it's just projected like, uh, self-loathing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, that's fine. Um, that's all right. We can uh, all all mock each other with equal accuracy then. I guess that's, that's fine. Um, so we've got a few things to talk through today. Uh, New Zealand and then overseas, some interesting news on both uh, kind of fronts. And why don't we start off with the cost of living and inflation, um, that favorite bugbear that everyone's coming back to. It's still still one of the biggest kind of items, you know, on the weekly news. It hits us all in the in the pocket, very kitchen table kind of issue, right? It's hard to ignore. Um, Bronco, you were saying you'd been thinking about this a bit recently. What's your... What's your vibe from well, overseas? Well, we talked about this uh, in the in the US. I mean, it's a very similar situation in the USA and in New Zealand and everywhere else, which is basically that the, the every central bank is planning to deal with inflation. Which I mean, we talked about this last week, so I might I might be repeating myself here a little bit, but uh, they're all planning to deal with inflation, which we have to remember is caused by external factors happening all over the world, um, predominantly, not not entirely, but predominantly. Uh, and they're going to do it by putting people out of work. So they have less money. Um, uh, they struggle more financially. They, they can't be, uh, you know, uh, uh, putting money into the economy and, and you know, quote unquote, overheating the economy. Um, and then also at the same time, making it more expensive uh, generally uh, to service debt, which again uh, means less money is, is being actually spent into the economy, um, which is, a, I think, a disastrous thing to do i mean not just heartless for the in the u.s the millions of people who are going to lose their jobs but uh, for the thousands of kiwis who are going to lose their jobs um and and the worst part about it is that i don't think it's going to actually do that much about inflation um because i mean i was looking at the stats today wage inflation this is the this is all predicated on the idea that the, the reason why this is happening is because people are getting paid too much um, which is kind of true, but they think it's the people at the bottom who are getting paid too much and they need to, to, to struggle a little more than they are. Wage inflation is up, I think, 3.7, 3 3.8% uh, over the year. New Zealand's general inflation rate is 7%. So seems just on that basis, it's pretty self-evident that, that wage inflation is not what's driving all of this. And, and you know, even the Reserve Bank in their, in their new... Um, report in the health of the financial system, they said that they acknowledged that, you know, uh, supply chain issues have eased somewhat. That's a pretty crucial little word there, somewhat. That implies <laughs> that they haven't actually eased completely. Secondly, 
they say that uh, the war in Ukraine, the continuing war in Ukraine, is is is, is pushing up the price of a, a range of commodities, including fuel. Um, and of course, if fuel goes up, uh, you know, everything else is going to go up because you need fuel to to move things around the world and around the country. And so, you know, the the uh, the other thing I'm thinking of beyond the fact that we might be looking at that the the worst option is stagflation. You know, people lose their jobs and they're now paying more money uh, for, for for everything. Um, you know, I went to see actually this this uh, this event with Adam Tooze. Adam Tooze is a, a kind of a, ran, a renowned economist who's, who's really uh, from very high profile, I think, in the last few years, um, particularly on the left, even though he himself is, is a liberal, I believe. But he was talking about how you're seeing central banks all over the world now tightening monetary policy. And he was saying that that's not happened before. And it's going to be interesting to see, interesting slash horrifying to see what what that actually means if every single country in the world tightens um, uh, their monetary policy and and you know the resulting job losses and what that's going to do. Um, you know, it, it's not pretty, but that is the the, the road we're on. So that's that's what I'm thinking about right now. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting, right? Whenever we talk about inflation, I feel like there's a it's kind of a it rolls in the issue of the cost of living and inflation into one into one topic and the kind of liberal press centrist press likes to talk about that as if it's one thing so as you say like people are being paid too much well which people like what's being paid too much mean um what are the incoming and outgoing kind of revenue uh ways in which that works right um josephine what's your uh take on what bronco's been saying yeah, I'm just thinking about the other side of this. Of course, you know, there are external factors, but also if you look at um, the other factors that have contributed to it, if the neoliberal policies in the wake of COVID-19, I mean, which Naomi Klein would, you know, describe as disaster capitalism, for example, what a lot of neoliberal governments worldwide did was at the back of the pandemic, they, you know, um, they quickly did policies that benefited, you know, the, the the richest the most the businesses and the corporations so there was quantitative easing happening in New Zealand as well and this was also this is also a factor that contributes to um, inflation and we saw that um, the wealth of the you know of the wealthiest 10% or you know 1% have increased so much you know at an unprecedented rate during this crisis um, you know um, and the housing prices are now falling, but that is from a peak, an unprecedented peak over the last two years of COVID. So from 2020 to 2022, we saw, you know, the house prices rising so much. And so now it's dropping, but not dropping enough to, you know, pre-COVID or, you know, levels even before that. So even though there's a lot of hue and cry about property prices dropping, it actually actually hasn't dropped enough to make it, you know, affordable still. And the other thing is, of course, you know, what is the impact of quantitative easing and giving free money to businesses and rich people? Um, what's that impact of that on inflation? That's not discussed enough. And um, the other aspect is also thinking about why is it that all these economics experts, these are all, you know, um, from elite universities, highly privileged people within the professional managerial class, um, why are they advocating for this only solution to uh, inflation, as, as you outlined, Branko? Um, 
in the poor and working class people losing their jobs. Like this is the solution to inflation that all these uh, banks, uh, bank economists, like the ANZ chief economist suggested that. And um, so did the reserve banks across many uh, liberal, um, you know, capitalist uh, democracies across the world. So it just seems like there is one expendable group globally, and that is the poor and working class. And for all the, um, pressures and all the economic distortions that we're seeing as a result of pro-wealthy policies, again and again, the poor and the working class are, are, you know, the victims and are the ones that face the brunt of it, while the, the wealth of the, you know, of the top 1% is ring-fenced and it's also increasing, even amidst all this crisis. So that is what I'm looking at. Yeah, that's that's really well put. And I think that context is something we can't forget as well. Like it's not it's not the 90s anymore. It's not the 2000s anymore. It's not even the 2010s anymore. Like global market kind of synchronicity between all these different parts, as Branko saying, is going to cause a problem if everyone acts um, asynchronously well in a very like synchronized, globalized uh, financial world. Um, and yeah, I think it just in the same way as we've spoken about with the housing supply issue, I think it really showcases a kind of limitation on liberal and neoliberal imagination that, you know, we go back to the tried and true remedies that, you know, Fukuyama would be perfectly happy to recognize, right? We're still at the end of history. There's no like continuation of any kind of imagination in that, in that space. We're still in a market dominated kind of set of solutions, right? We're not going, okay, who's losing their jobs? Like why, why do these people need to lose their jobs? What does that mean? And digging in behind that everything's dialing the jobs the jobs versus inflation dial one way and then pushing it back the other way it's like first year economic stuff right <laughs> it's quite sad and then it's it sort of works the same way with uh tax cuts which i think we should roll into this discussion because it's all money right it's all like supply of money it's a is, is there a light at the end of the tunnel bronco are we going to get uh extra half a block of cheese a year or something well, this is this is a very interesting uh, uh, point of, of, of contrast to, to look at here, because when it comes to with the, with the tax issue, right, the idea is that that basically uh, workers, low wage workers, have to be kind of sacrificed here, unfortunately, to get inflation under control. Um, but there is a tacit agreement among both major parties. Um, uh, we see that in Nationals' tax plans, and we and we see that in some of what Labor's uh, uh, Labor's response to to this idea of a windfall tax. Uh, that, as 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 Josephine said, that's ring fence. That's off the table. You can't touch uh, the, the the wealth of, of executives and 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 the rich. Um, I mean, one thing that we just just before we delve fully into this into Nationals' absurd tax plans. Um, I think it's important to note that uh, the other part of this that we're not talking about is um, is, is executive compensation, executive pay. Uh, like I said, wage inflation way lower than, than uh, you know, the, the, the inflation rate. Meanwhile, you look at how much, uh, you know, the people running all these, these big businesses, uh, and, and particularly the ones that are actually squeezing Kiwi consumers the most, uh, I think, and, it, and it's massive. I mean, I've, I've actually got the stats over here right now. Uh, okay, so supermarkets, right? Uh, which is probably where people are most uh, acutely feeling this because you, you know you're having to go shopping, you know, every few days. You got to buy groceries. 
the ratio between CEO pay among the, the major supermarkets in New Zealand and, and the, the average, the median worker is 155 to one, right? You go to energy, another thing, another area where people are, are, are really feeling the pinch. Uh, among the, the, the four major major uh, companies here, you've got wage ratios anywhere from, from 15 to one, so the CEO compared to the, the, the median worker, to, to 29 to one. Uh, the others are in the twenties. Um, you go, you know, down down the list here, but but I think that gives you a pretty good uh, illustration of the fact that you know the the other part of this. It's the same uh, in the U.S. That this part of the debate is completely left off uh, the, the 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 discourse. But uh, there is a significant amount of this. That that the the reason why prices are going up. Yes, they're going up because of the war in Ukraine, because of supply chain issues. Because of you know uh, some of the 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 pandemic policy that put more money in people's pockets, I, I think that one's not as big a thing, but that is a part of it. But also, you have all these people who are looking at all the discourse around inflation and the panic around inflation and saying, well, you know what, price are going to go up. Everyone knows that prices are going to go up uh, regardless. So maybe we just put you know a few a few uh, a dollar more or sixty cents more or, or who knows what on top of everything. And then no one will realize that we're raising prices because everything's going up anyway. And then we take that home and we uh, we pay ourselves a little more. Um, that's a big part of it. I mean, and, and Julianne Genta was completely correct to say there should be a windfall tax, which is being introduced everywhere around the world. Unfortunately, the Labour government doesn't want to do it. And and it's just yet, you know, with, with that issue, it's yet one more case of the Labour government uh, boxing itself in because it refuses to do anything. Um, and so in the end, the, 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 uh, the, the, the only solution is going to be for the Reserve Bank to throw thousands of people out of work. Um, and, and then meanwhile, the, the, the political debate becomes either a do-nothing government that refuses to solve the issue at all, uh, or National, which has these absolutely ridiculous tax cuts that are going to overwhelmingly go to the very richest. Uh, and not benefit uh, ordinary people at all. Um, and that, what kind of a choice is that? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you know, we talk about Labour and, and National as the, I guess, the bugbears because the other people with their faces on the cover of this neoliberal orthodox po policy, essentially. But I think we need to name the name the actual enemy, which is Treasury and the economic establishment. Right? Um, the political class is just an offshoot of the way that these people are trained to think. And that's something that I think on the left in New Zealand, especially, but um, worldwide, as far as I can tell, we don't take on the um, public sector in an aggressive enough way or a strategic enough way. Um, and you see what happens whenever um, leftists try to speak out against what's seen as kind of uh, the doxy, right? You can't you can't go past the you can't pull back the veil past a certain extent. You're you're allowed to debate, you know, should should we subsidize living costs in a certain way? Should we, uh, you know? give targeted subsidies to X or Y, working for families or whatever. Um, but as soon as you start questioning the entire uh, doxy that this, you know, the treasury edifice is essentially reliant upon, then you're treated as like an unserious actor, when in reality, that could help a lot more people than kind of treating within so carefully, like within the lines, right? It's a third rail issue, I guess. Eh? Yeah, I just wanted to also add one more thing. Um, to this discussion is about the sheer profiteering uh, by 
you know, people like the supermarkets in the midst of this. So there are many calculations by leftist ec economists, and they're showing how actually this, the prices do not reflect inflation. It's going beyond that, and they're actually uh, using this opportunity of inflation to increase their profits. So that's also another aspect um, that seems to be, you know, uh, being discussed a little bit by leftist economists, which is uh, really um, revealing. Yeah. I think it's clear to, to uh, or it's important to make clear that that um, if you did do something like a windfall tax or did something to to basically uh, attack this profiteering, to take on this profiteering, it wouldn't necessarily uh, uh, fix the issue of inflation because as 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 we've said a billion times, that issue has been driven by a whole host of, of, of other external factors that, that we don't really have much control over, unfortunately. Um, but it would do something. Um, and, and you know, some of that, that money that you recoup um, you could be used to alleviate some of the pressures that people are feeling, which are, which are pretty immense. I mean, like consumer credit uh, is, is way up. Uh, people are borrowing, you know, using credit cards more to, to, to try and stay afloat uh the the number of, of of kids and families and cars and emergency housing is up i was reading that even um uh, uh people in social housing uh are, are now you know thousands more people are finding it uh, unaffordable to even pay for that so that really shows you the the, the, the scale of the problem just to, to be a little specific on what exactly national is doing so uh according to ctu's economists uh analysis of their tax plan um they, uh, I, I believe the ratio was for every $10 of, of, of tax cuts that the highest earners would get, the, the lowest would get a dollar. Um, and so what that means is uh, someone, say, earning the, this, they use the, the example of the prime minister's um, salary, which is, a, I think, $470,000. Uh, they would get a $50,000 tax cut. Very nice. Must be must be very good to be the uh, the prime minister right about now. Uh, if if national uh, wins, by by the way, uh, gr would be great for Chris Christopher Luxon as well if uh, if he wins and gives himself a massive tax cut. Uh, but then you know someone earning uh, way less, I think would get something like a, a few you know seven hundred dollars a year. Uh, I mean that's a massive disparity. And then of course, once you do that, I think the, the estimate was over three years, uh, the, eliminating the top tax bracket, which is what National wants to do, you lose $2.4 billion. Um, and guess what? Guess what happens when the government doesn't have any more money to, to pay for all these services? What's National going to do? Oh, they say, well, you know what? We need to cut back everywhere else. Uh, it's too much, too, too much spending everywhere else. And I'm sure the, the first thing they're going to go for, of course, is, is to find some way to um, go after the people in welfare. Um, of course, that's a, that's a long-standing bugbear. Uh, uh, uh for the right so you know i mean it's 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 almost it's almost beautiful in how horrible it is uh i mean that's you can you can see it coming from a mile away and that's and 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 yet you know um it, it, yeah <laughs> what, what else do you say it's what um, that's, that's why i keep um like a broken record coming back to the fact that we need to talk about both inflation and the cost of living as separate and uh problems that can be addressed in different ways right because you can address issues with the cost of living for humans without dialing down inflation significantly, right? You can make life easier for people who are currently struggling to live. Like that's what a living crisis, a cost of living crisis is, is you're unable to pay for the basic kind of necessities of life. So I think as a, um, a strategic left project that cared about kind of working class and struggling precariat people needs to focus on that 
demand side of it and not just the supply side of it. So why is it that we have a cost of living, right? What, where are you spending your money? As you're talking about supermarkets gouging uh, profits, that's like a direct pocket hit. Um, the fact that the war in Ukraine is disrupting supply chains, like there's not much we can do about that in the next five years from New Zealand, right? At a political level other than, you know, urging diplomacy, blah, blah, blah. But in, in a direct kind of economic sense, we can alleviate people's struggle without looking at uh, inflation as the, the sole cause of all these things. And again, that comes back to the idea that uh, Treasury doesn't want us to think this way. <laughs> you know, um, They don't want the idea of, you know, uh, free public housing as, as a right, for example, a complete game changer or, a, you know, guaranteed job, uh, guaranteed minimum incomes, um, broad-based kind of popular policies. Uh, getting rid of GST, for example, would make a massive difference to cost of living. Uh, would it do much to inflation? Probably not a huge amount, you know, slightly increase spending overall, but we can treat those two things as different problems. So whenever the kind of economic orthodoxy of the Nicola Willis's and the Grant Robertson's rears its ugly head and they say, oh, inflation is why, you know, inflation is why you can't afford to live. Well, that's part of it, but you're not solving the problem. You know, there's there's plenty you could be doing to work around that and they're not, they refuse to do it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the, the the biggest cost for most people is is, is housing. Um, and that was that was going up way beyond before uh, any of this stuff happened. And it was I mean, for for very different reasons, and those reasons are still not really <laughs> have not been fixed. Uh, yeah, and, and thinking about housing, like seventy three percent of landlords are planning to increase their rents this year, by the way. So this is the kind of system that we are living under. Yeah, well, there was a way to to put those rents under some sort of control to to prevent them from going up too much to prevent uh, <laughs> landlords from gouging their tenants, but I, I can't think of anything. I don't know if you guys are. No, I mean, maybe before we move on, I just want to add as well, isn't it obscene that, I mean, the, 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 the for decades, uh, the discourse, the political discourse in New Zealand has been focused on bashing people who supposedly uh, don't want to work um, and prefer to live on the <laughs> a measly unlivable sum uh, so that they don't have to have jobs, right? That, that's been the whole thing. And, and we're going to punish those people as much as possible. We're going to make life harder for the poor so that uh, under, under welfare, so that they will be forced to, to, to get off their asses and, and go get a job, right? That's the discourse. And then here we are now being told, actually, you know, what has to happen is we actually have to throw people out of their jobs. We, we need to make sure they can work. And then, by the way, they don't go to a welfare system that we have deliberately um, uh, defunded and made uh, punitive and, and inadequate over, over decades so that once we force them out of a job, which we have to do, I'm, I'm sorry, we have to, uh, then they won't be able to, to live at all. And then we'll go back to blaming them for, not, uh, for being too lazy and, and not wanting to, to, to go to work. I mean, just, just think about the Rube Goldberg machine of, of obscenity here. Uh, that that we're, we're stuck in, in in our discourse. All right, we're all feeling good about the New Zealand economy. Good to uh, <laughs> good to see. Let's uh, roll on to the next cheery topic. Something that um, I don't know, Branko, how much you've been following this, but uh, Josephine and I've been um, nerding out about a little bit, which is Haiti, the the cheery cheery goings on um, in the Western Hemisphere. Um, Josephine, do you want to give a kind of pricey of what you've seen in Haiti over the last month? Yeah, I guess, um, you know, the history 
history goes beyond the last month, um, you know, we have to go back to the 19th century when, you know, uh, Haiti was the first, um, you know, um, case of a revolution, successful revolution by an enslaved population against their slave masters. So that was 1804. And ever since then, you know, Haiti has been treated as a pariah state by the West. They wanted to crush the revolution. They wanted to, you know, um, continue controlling the resources and labor of Haiti through other neo-colonial ways. And the first thing that, you know, uh, was done to do that was for you know French French warships surrounding this newly um, you know independent um, free slave state and demanding that they pay reparations back to the slave masters um, and so this this is a this is how history has worked you know the privileged not only get away with oppressing the poorest but then the poor are are you know forced to pay for the for the failures of the rich and uh, and so yeah so 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 Haiti has been oppressed by its former colonizer France and then coming into the 20th century uh, the United States occupied uh, Haiti for you know many years and I think until 1934 but then the financial um, apparatus of uh, Haiti was continued to be controlled by the US until 47. And then again and again, we see, you know, neo-colonial imperialist uh, interventions in Haiti. 2004, there was a US-backed coup, USA and Canada backed this coup against a social democratic leader, Jean-Bertrand Aristide, I think it's uh, pronounced. And uh, ever since then, there's, there's even more um, uh, instability. And then, of course, there was the, the Haiti, the big, um, you know, earthquake in Haiti. Which year was that? I can't remember. 2000 and, um, 2010? 10, yeah, around then. Yeah. Um, and since then, we, you know, I've been uh, noticing that there's a lot of um, news about abuse by international aid agencies, including Oxfam. Um, you know, many of the of officers of Oxfam, you know, who were supposed to, um, uh, what do you say, distribute medicines were demanding sex in exchange of medicine. So there was a lot of abuse in, of power, uh, considering the huge power difference between the aid agencies and the local population. And so it's a question, it's, it's been a saga of nonstop um, neo-colonial violence in Haiti. And Haiti has not been able to um, practice uh, in a sovereign, like a sovereign country, um, you know, should. And this is the case, not only of Haiti, it's the case of many countries across the world, including, you know, a country where I I used to live in uh, Zimbabwe, um, which after gaining independence in 1980 was put under sanctions by its former colonizers. So um, this, is a, this is a story of multiple countries across the world. And in the West, when we analyze, you know, the unrest and the instability and the, and the poverty in these countries, we generally just say it's a failed state, the, the leaders are corrupt, you know, uh, they need to be, be more liberal capitalist in order to uh, develop themselves. But actually, when you see it, uh, especially the example of Haiti, it was the actually uh, institutions like IMF and World Bank and the United States implementing their 
auster austerity and neoliberal capitalist reforms that led to the downfall of this country. And you know what's the worst aspect of Haiti is in right now, of course, there's a lot of um, instability going on with um, with with the you know the the ex president uh, who was assassinated, and there are implications. Um, that suggest you know the West had a hand in this, and um, currently the leader is not recognized by the people. He was in you know I think put in power with the support of Western states like Canada and the USA, and there's a lot of um, violence against sorry protests against the current um, unelected leadership. Um, but what we are seeing is the West is supporting that puppet leader over there, and. Uh, you know, there's a food crisis, there's a fuel crisis. Um, so yeah, Haitians are under turmoil at the moment. And the worst thing is, if you look at the United States borders, there's an increased influx of uh, Haitian refugees. But Joe Biden's administration has actually been trying to send them back to Haiti rather than trying to support, um, you know, the victims of US imperialism in Haiti. So these are, you know, uh, and in a nutshell, what's happening there? Yeah, thanks, Josephine. That's that's right. It's you have to contextualize it because, as you say, Haiti has been this kind of staging ground for U.S. imperialism for uh, well centuries. It's gone on forever, right? As long as Haiti's been a, an option on yeah. the table, um, and it's really useful. Like it's really instructive, I think, to pay attention to countries like Haiti because, as you say, it's like a a full frontal attack on uh, a country that's trying to exist as a as a sovereign state in all these different like parallel ways, right? You have direct military intervention over and over again and coups, political violence, instability, economic intervention, economic um, neocolonialism from the IMF, the World Bank over years and years and years, instructed, you know, by various extents, by different actors. But you also have political like lawfare essentially from the UN. It shows the like the worst depredations of the concept of um, liberal international, um, you know, uh, humanitarian intervention, if you want to call it that, or whatever kind of conception of that uh, you you sort of think about, because as you say, we've seen these aid organizations and soldiers that were UN sanctioned through uh, Chapter Seven, which is kind of you know the the darling of the international liberal kind of centre left, right? That's that's the people we're um, sort of trained to think of as the as the good guys compared to it's not it's not America unilaterally. Uh, invading Iraq, right? It's a it's a UN sanctioned um, diplomatic mission initially that was increasingly militarized over time, and they were just as bad as the worst kind of um, egregious uh, crimes against humanity as any any other kind of invasion has been. They were they put um, they dumped fecal matter in water sources, and tens of thousands of Haitians died of cholera. They introduced cholera to the country. Um, there was widespread kind of sexual abuse and rape of young like teenagers and young girls and young boys um, over a long, long period of time. There's a there's a statue in Haiti um, and it has like a, a plaque that's like to the to the victims of um, like the kind imperialists, basically. Right. And there's like skulls on this on this thing. Tens of thousands of people in a, in a small, incredibly impoverished country. Yeah. So it's not hard to see why there's widespread um disgust and feeling of real like defensive repellence against the idea of uh u.s imperialism in that in that nation and then more recently what's sort of put this in the news a little bit more 
has been not the protests that, as you say, have been going on for a long time against an unelected leader, extremely unpopular, unelected right-wing puppet of the US leader. The protests are about um, an, another attempt by the IMF to remove subsidies from fuel in a country that's entirely reliant on it to move their goods around and they don't have their minimum wages so low, um, which, you know, uh, small point here, <laughs> WikiLeaks uh, released uh, some years ago that the US had directly intervened to make sure that Haiti kept their minimum wage low so that they could continue to exploit their flow of goods um, against, you know, the will of the people. Apparently, um, intervention's good when it when it helps the US, right? Uh, meddling, you might say. <laughs> meddling in another nation's sovereign affairs. Um, so they can't afford it. And these protests have been going on for a long time, but are now being referred to as gang violence. And there is a lot of gang violence, right? We're not denying that there, there's brutal kind of gang attacks and there's a disturbing amount of um, very like high-powered weapons in the hands of people who shouldn't have them. Um, but the response of the UN and the kind of liberal intelligentsia has been to target the people who now have the weapons. There's been UN sanctions on the gangs themselves, the specific gang members and leaders of the gang. These people, for the most part, don't have passports. You know, they're not leaving their towns where they live. <laughs> they're, sure, they're implementing like very cruel, uh, violent um, kind of you know enclaves of kind of populist outbreaks of stochastic violence. But it's not that's you, you're not going to do anything by doing that. It, it looks good to do that these kind of uh, targeted sanctions. But if you're going to talk about the actual flow of weapons into the country, you have to start targeting rich people. And that apparently is beyond the pale. I think uh, one thing to note, uh, we've talked a lot on this podcast about the ripple effects and the unintended consequences of, of military solutions and, and why, you know, sometimes when you are faced with a series of very bad and unappealing options, there often isn't really a good one and 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 you know you have to find the, the one that's going to be least destructive in the long term uh i mean haiti's kind of a good example of that because it, i mean it, it's such a mess uh because the the last president who was assassinated because he wouldn't have an election um the guy who replaced him was actually seen in the u.s as as kind of this would be a good solution uh i'm not saying that they that they orchestrated this i don't think there's evidence that they orchestrated it um but you uh, the the former ambassador to haiti did tell congress you know the best thing that would happen now is if we can put him aside and then if if the uh, we go with with a prime minister and, and 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 sort of work with the prime minister to try and um, make stability happen uh now the guy was eventually assassinated by a a, a colombian uh team of, of, of uh, commandos who were actually in, originally in Bolivia um, planning to, to kill the Bolivian uh, president who uh, won and, and kicked the coup government uh, out of power. Um, they were trained in the US. They were, they were trained in the US as part of longstanding partnership between the United States and Colombia, um, where basically uh, the United States would, would, would uh, train um, these these uh, uh, soldiers and, and, and forces to to basically crack down on gang crime and and to prevent um, you know uh, immigration. That that was that was sort of the the, the solution to to waves of migration. If we just um, 
uh, arm and train people to terrorize the local populations, then they'll stop people from, uh, they'll stop all these, you know, criminals and stuff from pushing people away. But unfortunately, they, they became as bad, if not worse, than the criminals. Um, and then to boot, not only that, but the training that they got allowed them to then go off uh, around the world and, and plan to assassinate, uh, uh, you know, various leaders, including in Bolivia and Haiti, as we're seeing now. Um, on top of that, uh, the New York Times report, I think it was last year, uh, in, the, in this big long report about the, the the assassination plan, that and this was buried in the in the 29th paragraph of the piece, uh, one of the people involved in the assassinations uh, admitted that that you know the reason that they went ahead with it, or part of the reason they went ahead with it, was because they got word that the U.S. was okay with it. Um, again, because they they're thinking was well, who cares? This guy isn't isn't is, is doing a terrible job. Uh, he's not particularly democratic if we get rid of him and then we can work with this guy and then things will be better. But in fact, they, they're they not better. And, and I mean, part of the reason why these gangs are blocking this this uh, fuel depot and, and causing all this ha uh, havoc, one of the demands is that they want the guy in power now, the prime minister uh, who took over from the assassinated president um, to, to step down. So, I mean, there's not really any good solution here, but I think we're starting to get a, I hope people are starting to get a sense of just how complicated and messy the situation is. And every attempt to solve it uh, via some heavy handed measure just leads to, you know, uh, longer term and worse repercussions that, that, that we couldn't have predicted at first. Um, I, you know, I don't know if that, that would happen if, if UN uh, troops were sent in. Uh, but it very well could. I mean, uh, you know, uh, I think one of you guys mentioned, I mean, one of the things that, that UN um, peacekeepers did in Haiti uh, when they were stationed there before was there was a massive child sex abuse scandal. And I mean, there's there's also child sex abuse happening by these gangs as well, as, as well as a, a, a series of other stomach churning crimes. Um, so, you know, it's not like that's any better either but um but it's yeah, not a, it's, 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 a, it's a not a moral off that's the problem right is that the way yeah. it's being reported is as you know as if you can tally up what's bad in, in one place and what's bad right. in a different place and have some kind of you know uh, grotesque kind of like crime stack and then the one that's lower is the is the solution that we should endorse like the new york times and washington post are openly saying um the u.s should uh basically invade Haiti at the at the request at the you know quote unquote that's the will of the Haitian people. I don't see any polls to say that that's the case, and I'm willing to bet uh, that that's not the will of the Haitian people. But that doesn't matter, right? That's liberal internationalism for you. You can kind of take whatever will find you know find a Haitian who agrees with you, and that becomes the um, the identity of the of the people you're trying to uh, speak for. But to bring it like right up to date, the U.S. isn't now that uh, China and Russia don't seem on board. The Security Council's not likely to um, authorize, you know, UN direct kind of intervention. Um, but the US seems to want to use the uh, Global Fragilities Act that Trump signed in in 18 or 19, I think 2019, um, to uh, do a kind of quote unquote regional solution. So the idea of that was like unstable local countries could work together um, in the Western Hemisphere to solve regional problems and the the irony of the us and mexico um telling haiti they have a gang problem like shouldn't be lost on anyone right after deliberate construction and uh fanning the flames of um narco gangs and in, in mexico for so long and it seems like uh the us really wants canada to do its dirty work work for it but you know i don't see any sign of that on the horizon thank goodness
I think, you know, at the end of it, we must always remember that Haiti has been punished ever since that revolution. And, you know, this is an interesting theme across the world where, uh, where wherever the poor and working class, the enslaved rise up against, you know, the powers that be, they strike back, the empire strikes back, and they want to continue exploiting the resources and labor. So um, the counter-revolutionary forces, you know, something that we need to keep an eye out on. And just imagine, United States especially had an interest to, you know, um, to crush the Haitian revolution, because in 1804, you know, as we all know, slavery was still alive and thriving in the United States. And so, and in many colonies of, you know, Western European countries. So, so yeah, they wanted to crush it at any cost. They punished them by financial uh, means and by political uh, means as well. And unfortunately they were successful. The common people in, in Haiti are still suffering from the impacts of this imperial, you know, uh, violence that they've been uh, under for so long. And that's where, you know, the countries like um, Cuba are like a shining light. This is why the left globally needs to be on the side of Cuba. We need to make sure that the revolution lives on in Cuba and that the embargo is lifted, which interestingly, recently there was a, a, a vote on. And, you know, only two countries voted in favor on continuing the U.S. embargo in, in Cuba, and that was USA and Israel. And all other countries voted in favor of removing the embargo. And there were two countries that abstained. One was, you know, Bolsonaro's uh, Brazil, and the other one was Ukraine, which is interesting. I'm not going to comment on that further. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's uh... Yeah, I find um, the kind of, I, I guess they call it the Western Hemisphere, that kind of the Latin American, American states kind of block as really kind of, um, it's often the canary in the coal mine, I think, for global affairs and the way that states are kind of relating to each other. Because for some reason, um, the US in particular feels that they can take the the gloves off when it's in their backyard. There's, they, there's no need to hide the degree to which they want to control other states' affairs. You know, they've done, they've actively caused two coups in Haiti within 30 years of each other, like nonstop violent um violence that's been that they've fanned the flames of, economic um sanctions and pressure, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas without outside of that sphere, they there's more of a need of kind of uh they they put the gloves back on, they're, they're polite again. They suddenly they put put the mask of um international conciliation on and can kind of talk kindly about as states as if states have rights <laughs> as if that's a real thing that exists in the world well speaking of that region and uh, bolsonaro's brazil uh we should end on something uh actually kind of good and and, and maybe even hopeful because uh, it's not bolsonaro's brazil anymore uh technically it is for un, until until uh lula has inaugurated but of course bolsonaro uh lost the brazilian election and thank god he did um what's happening in brazil uh is not just not just holds huge stakes for what's for, for people in brazil but but for the rest of us um given the uh the, the fact that the amazon rainforest uh sits right in that country uh and was being eviscerated um 
uh, by Bolsonaro and who I'm sure is planning to, to continue as a sultan down the line. Um, but but he lost uh, in a very, very narrow election, which is shocking and to some extent depressing um, that, that someone as incompetent and horrifying as Bolsonaro was able to come within, I think, what, 1.8 percentage points um, of, of Lula, who did leave office uh, with a... I think 80, 80 something percent approval rating. Um, but I guess it shows you how much Brazil has changed. It probably speaks to some of the stuff. Uh, uh, people, I, I'd encourage everyone to listen to my interview with uh, Sabrina Fernandez uh, uh, about the Brazilian election that we put out shortly before it happened. Um, but, but you know, Bolsonaro really put out all the stops. He was uh, froze uh, spending in public health and education uh, so that he could divvy out money um, uh, to you know, to the poor, which isn't a bad thing, of course, but he was doing it in a not very <laughs> smart and and a confident way, and doing it as a as a election bribe, basically. Uh, at the same time, um, I think the other thing to to note is that uh, the Brazil's federal highway police, whose uh, head is a is a Bolsonaro supporter, um, uh, uh, actually um, on the day of 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 the election embarked on what at first seemed like the beginning of a, a coup um and I, I think effectively kind of was one they were trying to suppress the vote and i think they probably did succeed to some extent we'll, we'll never know what what to what extent they, they managed to but they set up roadblocks and checkpoints um overwhelmingly in the parts of the country that are most likely to vote for lula and and, and pt uh there were huge traffic jams huge delays um you know people like eventually got to vote but who knows how many people you know looked at the traffic and said oh jesus christ well i'm not bothering um uh and and they actually had to get off-duty officers to come in because this was such a massive operation they had to get off-duty officers to come in um to to to, to do it uh it didn't work ultimately um, but, you know, I think uh, Lula ended up losing in every region of the country except for um, the Northeast. So that, that shows you, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure it had an impact. I'm sure it wasn't the only reason that it was that close, but, but you know, certainly it was a big part of the reason. But again, the most important thing is, despite all of that, Lula has won. Uh, and there's an enormous amount of challenges ahead. Um, but I think we can at least savor that a little bit and be a little bit uh, hopeful for, for not just Brazil and Latin America, but, but for the world as well. Yay, I agree. I mean, um, Lula won. And I remember when he first became uh, president and that was when, you know, I was getting into politics in India and I was reading about him and he was one of the, you know, leaders when BRICS, you know, first came into being. And there was a lot of uh, hope around his policies, especially his policies on food and education were, you know, quite interesting for me as a, you know, a, a young person growing up in India. And so uh, to see the resurgence of Lula after all that, you know, um, um, the powers that be in Brazil and, you know, 
their collaborators in the West have tried to crush him. He has come back and, uh, you know, the democratic will of the people, like you say, even though it was suppressed, it might have been suppressed to some extent, um, has come out and uh, and Lula has won. So that is really something that is, um, you know, worth celebrating, um, uh, you know, for leftists across the world. And look at the entire um, political map of, uh, of, of Latin America right now, there is a red wave. Um, so many countries have recently moved towards the left. So hopefully they can work in tandem with each other. I saw recently that the Bolivian, uh, sorry, the Colombian leadership um, visited uh, Venezuela and, um, you know, improved the uh, discussing improved ties and uh, trade and cooperation. So hopefully the, you know, embattled uh, countries of, the, of, of Latin America who are facing, always facing the brink of US imperialism um, can actually emerge, um, you know, uh, as powerful and um, to support the interests of the poor and the working class in, the, in that region. So yeah, congratulations to our comrades in, in Brazil. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's worth a, a caipirinha and a and a samba, right? I think everyone needs to like take a moment to to celebrate. It's a it's a tough it's a tough thing in in Brazil. I think this is the first time ever. I'm not a not a historian of Brazilian politics, but as far as I know, it's the first time ever that a sitting president in Brazil has been up for re-election and not uh, won, right? That's correct. Yeah, which is I mean, it's a historic victory, right? Uh, regardless yeah. of how close it is, um, and despite you know significant both kind of legal and economic attempts to change the course uh in the last six months when bolsonaro could see how low he was polling he could see he needed support in these in these areas or at least a support to suppress support for for lula um he didn't manage and that's that's impressive you know it was close it was much closer than the polls would have indicated and all of our kind of hearts were in our in our teeth for a moment there um but yeah pulled it out and that's that's awesome a, a working class president is back in brazil I mean, that's exciting. It, 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 yeah, it's it's interesting as well that it's such a a funny thing to see, you know, the the US, which has had such a a, a negative role in terms of suppressing democracy in, in Latin America historically, and and of course, you know, the Obama, the Obama Biden administration, as people now call it, um, uh, did actually play a, 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 a an important a key role uh, in the legal machinations that eventually led to to Lula being imprisoned falsely. Um, and yet, uh, Biden was one of the first uh, to, you know, right at the gate, come in and say, uh, basically, we the election was legitimate, Lula won, and uh, everyone should respect that victory. Um, which I think, you know, I don't, I don't think that's necessarily to do with uh, any sort of, you know, uh, some sort of righteousness on, on their part. I think it would look very awkward if you're, um, on the one hand, making your entire election pitch and, and very much your entire political pitch in general about you know defending democracy and and defending it from those who would deny elections and and then you you come out on the side of <laughs> the guy who's trying to do the exact same thing that trump did uh, uh against biden it would look very awkward very awkward also in the in the whole uh the the former foreign policy formulation of you know democracies versus autocracies that biden's doing but nonetheless it's an important shift i think um that that you know even the democrats uh are now you know willing to do this remember it was it was the obama administration also that uh 
put its thumb on the scale um, to 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 uh, in favor of the coup in Honduras, um, which was mm. incredibly destructive in that country. So that's an important show. Um, oh, uh, sorry, Josephine. No, and uh, just thinking about you know the the destabilization of Brazil historically, um, USA has had a part to play in it. Um, would you be able to talk anything about the 1964 uh, coup in Brazil? Branco, do you know anything about uh, not, it? Not in, in, in great detail. Um, mm. but, yeah. but yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, the, the US, as I you know, mentioned with the, the, the Colombia stuff, I mean, the US has been deeply involved in, and often in, in fueling and propping up the most repressive and, and reactionary yes. elements in, in, in all that in America. I don't think that's necessarily going to completely stop necessarily. I mean, especially if you have if you have Trump and, and the Republicans in power. Um, but uh, the fact that there's at least some sort of a a shift here, um, I think, is, is good. I mean, there's also you know, for the rest of us, this victory and the rest of the world, this victory is really important. I mean, you know, you mentioned BRICS, Josephine Lula is already talking about expanding BRICS. BRICS was an attempt to uh in the in the unipolar world in the in the post-cold war world where there was only one superpower the united states and they could basically act with impunity and, and we saw the results of that in iraq and afghanistan and so many other places uh brooks was an attempt to 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 as a, as a counterweight to that to you know if we pull our, our resources together pull our power economic power we can maybe um make it so that, that the world isn't so unbalanced um Lula's talking about expanding it bring you know making it uh, come to the forefront again that would be really good uh i saw today lula is talking about making an opec a, a sort of cartel for the world's um uh, uh rainforests so not just the amazon but uh the rainforest in the congo and in indonesia those are the two countries right now that he's, he's talking about there could be more that come in. Obviously, we have these other left of center, center um, governments in Latin America. That will be huge. Uh, I mean, because those rainforests, again, uh, they may be located in these countries, but they are crucial for all of us, for, for life on Earth to continue. Um, Alula is talking about making a, a Latin American currency, um, which would be really important. One of the key, one of the core uh, 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 factors behind the 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 way the U.S. has dominated the world, and I think in, in very unhealthy ways. I should say the U.S. government has been uh, through through the U.S. dollar's uh, role as a reserve currency. That's been slightly that's been weakening over the past decades. It's kind of a little bit accelerated because of the 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 Ukraine war and the, and the, the U.S. led sanctions that led a lot of countries to go, oh shit, uh, this yeah you know, we we we're just kind of sitting ducks here um so any attempt if if the slight american currency actually works out i mean that could be really important to to basically moving things away from from that as well um you know, on there, that point things... on that yeah. point i just want to you know bring attention to uh, hugo chavez who also uh, suggested um you know a bolivarian uh, currency uh, for latin america and you know the result of course and and among his other policy suggestions was nationalization of venezuela's you know huge um petroleum resources which led to the imposition of sanctions on venezuela which hit the poor and working class there the most and we're continuing to see the impacts of us 
USA's um, uh, sanctions on Venezuela. So again, whenever we hear about any analysis of Venezuela from the West, they never account for the impact of US imperialism on that country either. So this is a continuing story across um, uh, Latin America. But you know, I just want to also just mention uh, how so many countries, there is a huge leftist tradition in, in Latin America. So there's a huge, uh, you know, powerful working class movements across Latin America. Um, and the left won in multiple countries in recent years, in Honduras in 2021, in Nicaragua 2021, Peru 2021, Pedro Castillo, Bolivia, Luis Acre in 2020, Chile got in 2021, Gabriel Boric and uh, Colombia, Gustavo Petro in 2022. And finally, you know, we're talking about Brazil. So it's a red wave. I just wanted to um, remind everyone that there's a huge working class uh, movement and leftist tradition in in Latin America that has been, you know, eclipsed by imperialist powers that support um, the bourgeoisie there to, to derail, like you mentioned, Branco, the democratic um, uh, socialist movements in these countries. Yeah, I mean, the, the hope is uh, basically with, with Lula coming in um, and some of these pink tie governments, even if Lula is frustrated on the, on the domestic side, which he will be because PT doesn't, doesn't uh, have a huge presence in Congress and um, actually Bolsonaro's uh, party is, is horrifyingly the, uh, has, has the most seats, which is not an enormous amount of seats in Brazil's pretty fragmented system, but it, it, it does have the most. But um, uh, even if he's frustrated on that side, there could still be things that he can do in, in, on, on foreign policy and, and you know, geopolitically. And, and, you know, I mean, that, that'll be good for, for the region. It'll be good for Brazil, for sure. Also be good for the rest of us. Um, so I think that that's, that's something to be, to be optimistic about. And also, there is some sign that he may not be quite as, as you know, he'll, he'll have challenges, but it may not be quite the, the US-style political warfare, um, the use of kind of, uh, 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 what word am I looking for? You know, gumming up the, the, the work of government, basically, to, to sabotage uh, Lula. Uh, already, actually, um, a number of kind of Bolsonaro allies have, have uh, suggested that they, that they would work with, with Lula um, uh, for a constitutional amendment to sort of um, give, give him flexibility on spending. Um, it, it seems like Lula, you know, from some of the reports I've seen, is, is negotiating around the, the next budget, which is highly unusual. He's not even <laughs> the president yet. Um, but but that shows you that, that maybe, we'll see. I'm sure he's going to have enormous challenges, but it may, it may not be, you know, the Republican-style obstructionism um, that he's going to be facing, uh, that, that that Biden and Obama have, have, have and, and even Clinton before them had to. It could be a different thing. So you know, wait, wait and see. Let's, let's yeah. just keep uh, our minds open. Yeah, to to look forward. I, I wanted to come to that as well. Like, as you say, the the Congress on paper looks terrifying, right? It's it's very on paper right wing, and it's awful. Um, but as you say, like both for structural and I think um, historical different and personality differences even. There are reasons to suspect that Lula might do a much better job um, than it looks like he should be able to do, given what he's got to work with. Like in the past, he's been an incredible unifier um, across groups that look like they should have nothing in common, right? His initial kind of indigenous plus working class plus environmentalist plus protest movement um, should have not worked. <laughs> and it worked incredibly. So if anyone can do it, Lula can, right? He's an incredible negotiator, incredible unifier. Um, amazing operator, as you say, already planning 
um, already putting stuff in stone, making relationships. And a lot of the Bolsonarismo, um, uh, you know, organization, if you if you want to call it that, was really a, a confection of the times. It's not, it doesn't have deep roots. It's not a social movement rooted organization. It was there because they needed something to block something. It was, it's anti-stuff. It's not pro-stuff. Um, in as much as it has a kind of working ideology, there's a kind of, you know, pseudo-fascist, like transcendent, nationalistic, uh, utopian kind of energy to it that I have faith that Lula will be able to tap into a lot of that um, and separate a lot of the more like localist members of that group. Because um, a lot of them just, you know, they're there for to get what they can as the mayor of a, a city or whatever. Like there's a lot of local regional reasons why that coalition came together. Um, yeah, so I think probably over the next year or two, even though, as I say, on paper, it looks terrible, Lula will start pulling out the stops and do what he's good at and disintegrate that kind of pseudo alliance of reactionaries yeah i mean they interestingly uh w w one of the reasons why why bolsonaro might not end up trying anything might i'm saying might because it's, the man is is not uh <laughs> the most level-headed of people to say the least uh is because his allies actually they did very well in the election and they're like hey don't don't screw this up for us don't do something crazy so that we actually that jeopardizes this thing that we legitimately were able to do. Uh, so see, there's a great Lula quote. Um, um, uh, it, I think it was from when he when he won the the presidency. I'm I'm not totally sure when, but you know it was, it was from his initial his initial run in politics. And he said, you know, if, if Jesus came to Rio, he would have to make a deal with Judas. Uh, <laughs> yeah, basically gives you an idea of, of how uh, difficult. <laughs> um difficult brazilian politics is but also gives you a sense of you know how it is possible to 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 make deals and it is possible to rise above some of this um political rancor and and let's hope it does um you know for the sake of brazil and for the sake of the rest of us yeah i think that's a wonderful uh note to end on uplifting uplifting at the end that's a nice change good job on it yeah we, we don't <laughs> about us um pay us back through uh sharing with people who maybe find what we're saying interesting maybe they don't that's okay as well uh spread the words spread the one or two hundred vibes um around altero and around the world we appreciate it and we'll see you next week